he had not uh, seen before that time. So Spurgeon might say to someone, uh, John Smith, I'd like for you to get up and uh, preach us a little sermon from, from the parable of the sower. And so he was expected to get up and <clears throat> give an extemporaneous address. And one time he called on a young man and said, I'd like for you to give us a sermon on the story of Zacchaeus. And so the young man got up and he said, Zacchaeus was a little man and so am I. Zacchaeus was up a tree, and so am I. Zacchaeus came down, and so am I. And he walked and took his seat. <clears throat> and C.H. Uh, Spurgeon gave him a good grade on that sermon. Thought that was Well, I think of that as I uh, preach through the book of Revelation. There are times when I think, I am a little man and barely understand this myself. And yet here I have committed myself to preaching on it. And uh, so I don't want to get your hopes up and say this is going to be a brief sermon, but nobody ever cares if it is. I never had anybody really complain that a sermon was too short. Uh, but I, I don't know how long this sermon is going to be. I've, uh, it, it's easy to divide into three sections. Number one, the beast that came from the sea. Number two, the beast that comes from the land. And then number three, some application of this, of this uh, passage to us. Now, we do have a few visitors here this morning, and so it's important for me to review a couple of things that most of you have heard two or three times already. There are four basic ways to approach the book of Revelation. Uh, the, the one that is most well-known, that is most famous, is the futurist a perspective that everything in the book of Revelation is describing something that's going to happen in the future. Uh, one of the other perspectives is that the book of Revelation describes historical events that have happened again and again throughout the Christian era. <clears throat> and so some of it has already passed, some of it is still future. That's the, the historicist position. And then there's another position called the idealist position, which says that the book of Revelation just tells us <clears throat> various spiritual conflicts and victories that are repeated over and over throughout history. We shouldn't, the idealist says, we shouldn't look for specific historical fulfillments of anything here. These are just descriptions of spiritual battles that are going on all the time. And then the fourth position, which is the position that I take, is called the preterist. But that's not a word that we know very well. It just means that the book of Revelation has mostly happened in the first century. And so I believe that the book of Revelation is about the replacement of the old bride with a new bride. That uh, the old bride was uh, the people of Israel and that the center of Israel was Jerusalem. And so when the old bride is, uh, is divorced and done away with, the city of Jerusalem is destroyed. And that happened in 70 A.D. And so... I and then the new bride, which is the church, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, not just individual churches, but people from all tribes and peoples and nations and languages, are, uh, are now the bride of Christ. It is a, so it's a, an old bride that's replaced with a new bride. It is an old Jerusalem that is replaced with a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so... In general, 
That's the perspective. And so if you have only heard a futurist position, then what you hear this morning is going to be unusual. Uh, But anyway, perhaps that will set you up to understand why it sounds so different. I'm not looking for there to be a beast in the future. I think that the beast lived in the first century. And uh, we'll try to explain you why I think that. And then a couple of other principles that have guided us. One that led me to the preterist position is that the book of Revelation begins and ends. So chapter 1 and chapter 22 with saying this is going to happen soon. It's going to happen really soon. And then also Jesus in describing many of the same events using some of the same word pictures says this is going to happen in the lifetime of people who are standing here now within this generation. And so he concludes the Olivet Discourse by saying these things are going to happen within the life of those who are standing here. So that's what's led me to take this position. One other principle that I've already mentioned is when we can, we're going to try to let the Scriptures interpret the book of Revelation. So we're going to try to find uh, other things in the Bible that may talk about beasts or, and so on and let that inform the way that we see this. And so with that in mind... Let's plunge into this very controversial chapter, Revelation chapter 13, and in the first uh, part of it, we see a beast that is rising from the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. And its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Let's pause right there and we'll pick up with verse 3 in just a minute. But let me explain some of the things that are here. First of all, let me remind you that what we have in chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15 is a behind-the-scenes look at what has led to the blowing of the trumpet, the seventh trumpet, the kingdom's of uh, the world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And uh, we sang the song that they in heaven sang at the, the blowing of the seventh trumpet. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and is, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Now that's what they sang at the blowing of the seventh trumpet. And then I think chapters 12 and following explain the spiritual things that were going on in the heavenly realm, in the realm of, uh, of spiritual activity, things that we can't always see physically but are happening. And uh, so I won't review the sermon from last week, but the last time that we... Uh, We saw the dragon. He had pursued after the woman. He was pursuing after uh, the spiritual seed of the Lord, uh, Christians and those Israelites who had received the Lord Jesus Christ. He's pursuing after them. He knows that he's got only a short time. He's trying to stamp out the influence of Christ and his gospel uh, in, in just a few years because the Lord has said that before the end comes... And he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem before the end comes that the gospel would be proclaimed throughout the world. And we have 
two or three instances in the New Testament that talks about the gospel at that time having been proclaimed throughout all the world. And so it doesn't mean that every single person on earth had heard it. It doesn't mean that the, the Mayas and Incas, and Incas in Central and South America had heard the gospel. But it does mean that the gospel had gone out through the, the civilized world at that time and, uh, and was already beginning to bring about converts. Well, Satan knows that his time is short, and so he's really trying to stamp out this spiritual seed of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the last time we saw him, he stood on the sand of the sea. Now, you may recall that he has, <clears throat> in pursuing the woman, he has vomited out a poisonous river, <clears throat> trying to swallow up the woman, but God providentially uh, averts that flood, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows the flood. So Satan's attempts at that time with the, the poison of false doctrine were unsuccessful. And so now he's going to try something else. And uh, he stands on the sand of the sea. And in the Bible, the sea usually represents the non-Jewish nations. So, so we can imagine that he's probably standing. We, we might think of him standing on the seashore, uh, on the Mediterranean Sea, looking, looking west. So Israel behind him. He's standing on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and he's looking out. And from the sea, which represents the Gentile nations, he, he, he calls a beast. And so there's a beast that rises out of the sea. And this beast that he sees, let's notice the description of it. It's got ten horns and seven heads. Remember that uh, in the visions that we saw of Daniel, there were ten toes on the beast. There were ten, ten horns on, uh, on the, the beast that, <clears throat> that he saw in chapter 7, the beast that he saw in chapter 7. And there were also a total of seven heads. And uh, so there was, there was uh, the head of the lion. There was the head of the bear. There were four heads on the leopard. And then, although not described, the beast that was too terrible to describe, we also assume that it had one head and that it means seven. And so what we have here, I believe, is a conglomeration of all of those kingdoms, the, the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Grecian, and the Roman kingdom, but not literally those kingdoms raised from the dead, but that all of these kingdoms together represented by Rome. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, we had four different beasts, but in Daniel chapter 2, we had one statue, and all four of these kingdoms were represented in one statue. And so I think that's what we have here. We have all four beasts representing the Gentile powers, but they're all represented now in just one beast. And so this comes out of the sea, and uh, the, the fact that he is like a leopard would indicate the swiftness of his ability to wreak havoc his feet like a bear's, great strength and power, his mouth like a lion's mouth, uh, loud, the king of beasts. And, uh, and this, this beast, this political beast, this beast from the sea, from the Gentile nations, is empowered by Satan. You see there at the end of verse 2, to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. And so, 
The Roman Empire was summoned by Satan. Of course, the Roman Empire had been in, in existence for a long time before the destruction of Jerusalem, but now Satan is investing the Roman Empire with special powers trying to, uh, to destroy the seed of the woman. Now let's go on look at verses 3 and following. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Now, so later on in the book of Revelation, we learn that the seven heads represent seven hills, and they also represent seven kings. If you want to, just turn over in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 17, and, uh, and I'll show you that. So verses 9 and 10, uh, Revelation 17, verses 9 and 10. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. So these seven heads on, on this beast that comes up out of the earth, the seven heads represent seven hills, and Rome was very famously situated on seven hills. So just like we call Chicago the Windy City and we call New Orleans the Big Easy, they, they called uh, Rome the city on seven hills. And uh, then, and, but it's not just hills, it's also kings. So starting with Julius Caesar, and uh, some of these kings are mentioned in the Bible, the next king to follow after Julius Caesar was Augustus. So we read about that in Luke chapter 2. Uh, Caesar Augustus was the emperor. And then it goes on until you get to the sixth king, which is a man named Nero. And uh, Nero, well, he, he lived for... Well, he became king when he was 17 years old, and he reigned for 15 or 16 years, so he was a fairly young man when he finally committed suicide. He, his name is just synonymous with being a, a, tyrannical des, a tyrannical despot. He is one of the most despised people who has ever lived, and uh, his name belongs in the same category with more, more recent uh, villains like Adolf Hitler Idi Amin and people like that. But uh, Nero set fire to Rome, and uh, after he set fire to Rome and much of the city was burned, he tried to blame it on the Christians, and this resulted in a period of three and a half years when the Christians were intensely persecuted by the Romans. Before that time, the persecution of Christians had mostly come from Jews. So much of the persecution that we read about in the New Testament comes from Jewish communities who are persecuting Christians. Uh, but then, uh, about uh, 66, I can't remember the exact dates, they know the exact dates, when the, the, the Nero's persecution of Christians commenced, and it ended when he finally committed suicide, uh, about the year 68. Uh, so anyway, back in, in Revelation chapter chapter 13, we know that these seven heads, because of what we read in Revelation 17, we know that these seven heads represent seven kings. And it says that there are blasphemous names on their heads. But wait a minute, I haven't explained 
One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. So at the death of Nero, there followed another uh, Caesar, a guy named Alba. He reigned only for three months. And so if we were still looking at Revelation 17, we would see how that fits there. The seven heads are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is no more, and the seventh will come, but he will remain for only a little while. So the sixth king is Nero, the seventh king is Alba, and he just reigns for three months. The, 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 king, the, uh, the Roman Empire was thrown into great uh, anarchy at the death of Herod. And for the next three rulers that came along, uh, just ruled for just a few weeks, a few months. And then order was restored when the guy who was, uh, who was surrounding Jerusalem with the army, when he went back to Rome and became the emperor, then he restored. But things, he restored order to the empire. But there for a while, things were so, so messed up that people thought, well, the Roman Empire is over. And so I think that explains one of his heads had received a mortal wound, but the mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth, as I've told you before, in the book of Revelation, the word for earth might just as well be translated land. And uh, in most cases, I think that would be a better translation because the focus really is on, is on what is happening in Israel and not what is happening in Europe and what's happening in uh, North and South America and so on. And so uh, the whole land marveled as they followed the beast. So the Jewish people were largely lured into following after Rome. And verse 4 says, They worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? So there were instances of emperor worship that were set up throughout the Roman Empire. And uh, the emperors uh, took to themselves names that were specific to deity, uh, like the, the divine or, or some other name that means the exalted heavenly one. They took those names to themselves, and the cult of emperor worship became very strong in the days leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. And I think that accounts for some of what we read in verses 5 and following. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. Blasphemy is slanders directed against God. And so when you set yourself up to be God, that's haughty and blasphemous accusations. or That's slanderous words spoken against God. Only God is God. And it was allowed, notice that, it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. And I think the one doing the allowing here is God. One of the lessons that we'll see is that God is in control even of these uh, ravenous, dragon-inspired governmental agencies that are after Christians. They are still under the thumb of God. But he allowed, them to, he allowed this beast to exercise authority for 42 months. We've already encountered this span of time several times in the book of Revelation. It's 1,260 days. It is uh, a time, times, and half a times. It is half of seven years. 
And so it's an indication that it is not a, a complete time, the number seven being affiliated with divinity and completeness. Instead, it is a short time. I don't think that it's always literally 1,260 days. I think that it is a figurative uh, numeral, sort of like if I say I was up 24-7 for days at a time. So 24-7, you don't, you don't think I really was awake all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But that's just kind of a phrase. Or another phrase that we use is, wow, I haven't seen you in a month of Sundays. And we're not really saying it was 30 weeks. It's just a figure of speech that says a long time. And that's the way that I think that this figure, 42 months, is used. It is a, it's a relatively short time, 42 months, that he has granted authority. In verse 6, we see that it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints. Notice the word allowed again. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And so, for a while, the the, the beast is allowed to... uh, to wreak havoc among the Christian community. And the, the persecution of Christians was just shocking. And they would take Christians and uh, dress them in the clothing of uh, sheep or goats and then uh, turn wild animals like wolves and tigers and lions loose to attack them. They would bring them into the Colosseum and let the wild animals loose to, to attack them. Uh, I pointed out to you in the song that we sang once to every man and nation that there's the line, by the light of burning martyrs, Christ thy bleeding feet we track. And during these days of terrible persecution, Nero would uh, take Christians and he would uh, saturate them with oil or coat them with pitch and then nail them up to a post and set fire to them and use them to light his garden parties. And so the, uh, the, uh, the persecution against Christians was just, just shocking. Uh, some of you will have uh, the CD that I recorded that's entitled Plead. If you've never looked at the painting on that, you should open up the whole CD And in the foreground, you'll see that there are lions coming out of a pit. And then there is a a cluster of Christians on their knees praying. And then around the perimeter of the Colosseum, you can see that there are people set on fire and burning. And uh, if you don't happen to have that CD or you'd like to look at the picture, if you just look up the picture online the Christian Martyr's Last Prayer. It's a very, very moving painting. There's several things in it that move me deeply, and I can't start talking about it right now. Uh, but the persecution that was under the, under the impetus of this wicked, terrible man, Nero, uh, was just shocking. In fact, uh, Nero would sometimes uh, dress Christians up in... Uh, in, in clothes, and he would tie them to a stake, and then he himself would put on uh, the, the pelt of a, an animal like a lion or a wolf, and he would come in, and he would, 
He would attack the Christians. And because there are children present hearing this sermon, I'm not going to be more specific. But you can find descriptions of that sort of thing in the ancient historian Tacitus. And also, if you were interested, you could listen to R.C. Sproul's uh, lectures on who is the beast, and uh, he would give you more details that I'm not, that I'm not going to give you now. But R.C. Sproul does say that one of the names, that the ancient historians say that one of the names by which Nero was called was the beast. He was just simply known as the beast. And so for 42 months, terrible persecution unleashed. unleashed. The, he has, the beast has great authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. And everybody who dwells in the land succumbs to the influence of the beast. Oh, not everyone. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So the Christians, whose names were written in the book of life, and they'd been written there before the foundation of the world, they, uh, they did not succumb to the temptation to bow down to the influence of the Roman beast. Verse 9 says, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Does that sound familiar? Yes, Jesus often used that phrase when he was teaching or when he had concluded a teaching. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. I think that verse 10 is a word of encouragement to the Christians. These people who are executing these, these vicious, unspeakable depredations against the Christian community are not going to be let off scot-free. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. God is sovereignly going to see that justice is eventually executed. But in the meanwhile, it calls for the endurance and the faith of the saints. So that is the description of the beast that rises from the sea. Now, beginning in verse 11, we have a description of another beast that rises out of the earth. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. Now remember at this time we are imagining that the dragon is standing on the sand of the sea facing out to the ocean and from the sea which represents the Gentile nations he calls forth this, this seven-headed beast and then from the land which represents Israel there comes forth this other beast. So what kind of beast comes out of Israel? Well it had two horns like a lamb. So it's got some power but it in some way looks like Jesus. He is a lamb. We've already seen that uh, John saw standing between the throne and the uh, four living creatures and among the elders, a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And uh, it's possible that here we have something like a parody of the Trinity. So we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, in this parody of the Trinity, we have dragon, beast from the sea, and beast from the land. And so the beast from the land would be an imitation of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's main work is to draw attention to Jesus Christ. And so he, the, the Holy Spirit builds the church, and the church is filled with his spirit. It is a display of what Jesus Christ is like. 
And here we're going to see that this parody of the Trinity, this beast from the earth, which is a parody of the Holy Spirit, he also devotes his attention to someone else. He devotes his attention to the beast that has arisen from the sea. And he even creates an image, something like a parody of the church or the temple, which is meant to represent the Lord. And he says, see here, this is going to uh, show you the, the great worth of the beast that has arisen from the sea. But so, since it has two horns like a lamb, then we assume that it is a religious figure, and that's how I'm going to interpret it. This, this represents... The collusion of the priesthood of Israel with the Romans. So they've got horns like a lamb. They look innocent, but it spoke like a dragon. Let me remind you of some of the things that uh, we read about in the Gospels. Uh, So after Lazarus had been raised from the dead, uh, there were people who were becoming believers because of this great miracle. And so there was a meeting of the leaders of the Jewish nation, and they said, look, what are we accomplishing? If we let him go on like this, the whole world will go after him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then, so they're, they're knowing, we, we've got something here, but what we've got going on is dependent upon our connection with Rome. If we let this, this cult of Christianity continue to flourish, we're going to be out of a job. And we like our job. If we, let, if we let this go on, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And then recall that when our Lord was uh, being tried by Pilate, and uh, he, he said he brings Jesus out, dressed in a purple robe, wearing the crown of thorns, and he says, Behold your king. And they cry out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? And their response was, we have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. And so the the priesthood, the most important powerful men in Judaism, the Sanhedrin and the priesthood and the high priests, they were in collusion with Rome. And so when, they're try- when the dragon is trying to stamp out the church, then he uses these corrupt religious leaders to try and accomplish it. Verse 12 says, It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth, or the land, and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. And so we don't read anywhere that the Jews were saying, you should burn incense to the, the images of the emperor or anything like that. But that what they were saying was, with your mind and with your actions, you must be in submission to Rome. Because, as I've already said, they knew that their authority was connected to this, uh, this connection that they have with the first beast. And so, during those days, we can read about this in the book of Acts, there were sorcerers who were performing great uh, miracles to deceive the people. We even know some of their names that are mentioned in the book of Acts. And I think that's what's being referred to in verse 13. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. 
And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth or in the land, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Now, what is the image of the beast that speaks? Well, I tried to set you up for this while ago when I was talking about this being a parody, the dragon and the two two beasts being a parody, something that makes fun of the Trinity. So, the, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit builds a church, and that church is filled with life and reflects back to the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the main purpose of the Holy Spirit. Well, here, this, this beast from the earth, who is the parody of the Holy Spirit, he causes them to build an image. I think that the image is the temple that was there. So I think that, <clears throat> so there was a, a temple that was built by Solomon. That temple was destroyed in the Babylonian takeover. And then there was a temple that was built uh, under Zerubbabel. We read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. That temple was also destroyed. And then during the life of Jesus, there was a third temple, and this temple was built by the Herods. Uh, Herod the Great, uh, he was the one who was king when Jesus was born. And uh, Herod the Great is called the Great mostly because of his, his marvelous building projects. And we have to give him that. He was a vicious beast of a man, but he, he did build some great stuff. And uh, it was under his reign, under the reign of the Herods, that the, the temple was under construction. And it was still under construction when Jesus was alive. So you may recall in John chapter 2, Jesus says, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Now, Jesus is probably about 30 at that time. And so the temple has been under construction for longer than Jesus had been alive. It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it again in three days. And so, of course, it was uh, the, the Herods were rulers, puppet rulers, that were put in place by Rome, but they were kings. Uh, that if you know anything about Roman history, you know that they would, as much as they could, allow the people of the regions to govern themselves, and they did that in Judea. So there were kings, and there were governors like Pilate, but they knew that the, the hand that fed them was the hand of Rome. And so they were all puppet rulers, and they didn't want to, they didn't want to offend Rome in any way. And so these political rulers in cahoots with the religious rulers who were also uh, eating out of the hand of Rome, they build an image, which I don't take to be a statue, I take it to be the temple that had been so uh, defiled, had been so defiled by their wicked ways and their false worship that now it was no longer a temple dedicated to the worship of Yahweh. Instead, it was a temple that was dedicated to the worship of the Roman Empire. And so when it says that the, the image of the beast might even speak, I, I don't think about a talking statue. I just think the message coming out of this defiled temple is one that, uh, that directed people to ultimate submission, not to Yahweh of Israel, but to the emperor of Rome. 
And if you didn't cooperate with that, then there were ways that they had of pinching you off. And I think that's what we read about in verses 16 and following. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. Now, we've been looking at a parody of the Trinity here. I think here we see a parody of something else that we read about in the Old Testament. God told the Jews to keep his law as frontlets between their eyes and as a, a mark on their hands. You can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and other places where it's specified. And so even to this day, Orthodox Jews will have something that they wear on their heads that has a little scripture in it and something they wear on their hands. They took it literally. I think that God in the Old Testament was saying, let it characterize the way that you think. Always let my law, let it be so obvious that it's, it's like you're wearing a, a headband that has my law written on it. It's seeping into your brain. So always be thinking about my law. Always be carrying out your activities in, in view of the fact of what I have required and what I have instructed you. And so I think that's the significance of what in Jesus' day had become the phylacteries. Jesus criticizes the religious leaders because they had made their phylacteries. These are these little uh, jewelry-like ornaments that they wear on their head and wear on their hands. He said, you're making them broad. You're, you're showing off. You're using it as an opportunity to show off. You want to show that you're an orthodox person, and so you do this. Uh, and... Uh, inadvertently, you are showing who you really belong to. You are really dedicating yourself to the God of pride when you do that by this mark on your head and by this mark on your hand. And uh, so I think that's what the mark of the beast is. I don't think that it's going to be a chip that's inserted in the future. I don't think that it's going to be a tattoo or anything like that in the future. I think they're describing something that happened in the first century and to some degree is still happening today, which I'll explain in the application. So back in those days, if you did not think and act like someone who was a loyal Roman or loyal to, loyal to the Jewish political factions who demanded subservience to Rome, they had ways of pinching you off economically. So they kicked you out of the synagogue. And if you were kicked out of the synagogue, then you were an untouchable. You were a pariah. You couldn't do business with people. Oh, you come to buy bread, and the baker says, Oh, I'm sorry, we're all sold out of bread. And then you can look, what about all this bread? Oh, it's already been sold to other people. You can't have any of it. So you try to go somewhere else to, to buy some honey from the beekeeper, and the beekeeper says, Oh, I'm sorry, it's all sold. Why are you people treating me this way? Oh, it's, it's, it's okay. It's all been sold already. But what they were doing is, They'd been kicked out of the synagogue, and so they couldn't carry on commerce. I think that's what it means here when it says that no one could buy or sell. Uh, no one could buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, when it's talking about just the beast, it's talking about the beast from the ocean, the beast from the sea. And so here we have that the, the number of the beast is 666. Now, for some of you, I went over this on Wednesday nights, but for the rest of you, this will be new material for you. And inside your bulletin, there is an insert 
On the other side of the children's page, there is a, uh, a little diagram that I, I wrote out for you. And uh, yeah, I can't find my bulletin, so I'll use the one that's on the overhead screen. You can look on the overhead screen or on your paper. Along the left side of your paper, and as I'm looking at it, the left side of that, you have the Hebrew alphabet. So starting at the top, Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, and so on, all the way down to the end. Now, in our, in our culture, uh, we have two ways of referring to a number. We can write out the number, O-N-E, spells one. We can write out the number, or we can use an Arabic numeral. We can write out the word two, T-W-O, or we can write out the Arabic numeral. And so um, we, that's, that's the way we do it. But in other languages, they use letters... Letters of the alphabet to represent numerals. And Hebrew is one of those languages. So in Hebrew, the letter Aleph, the one at the very top, is the number one. The letter Beth is the number two. And Gimel and so on down through there. You, uh, you get down to past uh, ten and then you start counting by tens and so on. You can, you can figure it out there. Well, the, the number of the beast is not 666, it's 666. You see the difference? It's not 6, 6, 6, it is 666. The next number would be 667. So, who is he referring to? And if he is referring to C, uh, the Nero, then why does he do it this way? Well, let's start with the why, and then I'll show you how it works out. So, John is in exile on the Isle of Patmos, and uh, we might assume that there are uh, Roman censors, as in censorship, there are Roman censors who will look at the things that he sends out. And so if he sends out something that says, oh, watch out for Nero, they're not going to let that out. And so he's thinking of a cryptic way to say... The beast is the Roman Empire, generally, and Nero specifically. A cryptic way of doing that is to say, here's his number. But uh, many of the people, of course, the Romans would be speaking Latin, and there would be other people who were Greek speakers, and not many people were able to speak uh, Hebrew except the Hebrews, some of the people who would be receiving this letter. And so they get this letter, and they say, oh, you need to watch out for a guy who's, uh, whose number is 666. And so I think it would be fairly easy for someone who set his mind to it. Oh, what does that mean? What does that mean? Oh, and they figure it out this way. So at the top right of the paper, or what you have on the screen, we have the word, as we would say it in English, Nero Caesar, all of the, the kings of Rome were called Caesars, just like the kings of Egypt were called Pharaohs. So we have Nero Caesar, and uh, that would be pronounced in those days, Neron Kaiser, and uh, you might recognize the word Kaiser, the German people had Kaisers for a while, relative of the word Caesar, and it would be spelled in English, N-R, it's actually hard to say this next letter, 
The next letter can sometimes be pronounced with a W sound because it's a wa. It can be a W sound, or if you put a little dot above the wa, it becomes an O sound. So it could be Nerwin, Caesar, or as I have it, Neuron, QSR. No way to pronounce it since it has no since it has no vowels. But that's the way that it would have been written in uh, in Hebrew letters with those letters. And so if you take those Hebrew letters and you figure out their numeric val- value, well, let's start with the N and uh, go to our little chart on the left. Come down to Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, Hey, Wah. Uh, Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, Hey, hey Wah. Oh, we need a Wah. Oh, that's the number six. So we write it in our column. And then we go down a little bit further and we come to the letter Nu. Okay, I've written N beside the letter Nu and the numeral 50. Okay, so there are two N's. We need two 50's. And uh, you can probably figure out what what happens here. I never figured this out on my own. I'm not a sufficient ancient scholar, but I, I read this. And it makes sense that if you're trying to be cryptic and yet not totally mysterious about what it is you're communicating then you can use this system of denotation and you end up with uh, the number of the beast is 666. And, uh, but again, I don't think that this was something that was literally written on people's hands or on their foreheads. I think this is a way of John communicating with, uh, with people in a subtle, cryptic way. The beast that we're talking about is Rome. And uh, right now, the Roman who is on the throne is Caesar. Well, uh, what are some lessons that we can take away from this? And uh, one is, beware of, let us Christians beware of hitching our wagons to any earthly government. Now, that was the mistake that the, the Jewish leaders made. They hitched their wagons, so to speak. They hitched the prosperity of their religion to Rome. And I think that in my own lifetime, I've seen some Christians come dangerously close to that. And uh, I'm, I'm an ardent patriot of the United States of America, so thankful that I have been born here. But the United States of America is not synonymous with Christianity, and Christianity does not depend upon the survival of the United States of America. God bless our land. Uh, God, God bless the United States of America. But no matter how many people we get elected to government, The kingdom of God is not going to come through our alliance with any earthly government. And so I'd say, beware of that. And then, let me mention something else here. There are economic pinch points that are being applied to God's people today. So in recent years, uh, there there have arisen several philosophies regarding, uh, like, homosexuality. So that... In the 1960s, the American Psychiatric Association would have identified homosexuality as a sickness. Well, that was changed, uh, but still the the culture at large was uh, opposed to homosexuality. Even in the mid-1990s when Ellen DeGeneres came out proclaiming herself to be a lesbian, her, her sitcom was canceled for that reason. But it wasn't long until she was back and and more popular than ever, one of the most popular people in the United States. And uh, gradually, but very quickly, quickly but gradually, we can see that there has arisen an idea which now has us to the place where if 
If someone who is a biological male wants to say that he's a woman, then he is a woman. And then here's the pinch point. You've got to say that he's a woman. It's not just that you're going to allow that people may express their sexual perversion in private however they want to. Now we are being required to celebrate that. And if you don't come alongside as an ally and someone celebrating that, well, then you're a troublemaker and you need to be, uh, you need to be dealt with. Now, this is farther along in some countries than it is in the United States. In, in, some, in some Asian countries, they have ways of determining if you have driven too fast or if you have jaywalked or if in some other way you have offended the government and you acquire this score. And if you go to buy an airline ticket and your score is too high, that's bad. Sorry, you can't buy an airline ticket. And so they can put the clamps down on you financially. Of course, the way that it's happening in the United States is that if you insist that everybody who gets paid ought to have a job, and you're someone who says there's, there ought to be a connection between working and reward, and everyone shouldn't be rewarded just on the basis of, of skin color or on the basis of sexual preference, then you're a troublemaker. And there's a high probability that you're going to lose your job. I was talking to someone just this past week who says that we are, we are being required in his corporation, we are being required to uh, attend a seminar on how to become an ally And what that means is that they're going to tell us that uh, these are ways that you can be an encouragement to the LGBTQ community. These are ways that you can be an encouragement to them. And he said to me, what if I don't want to be an encouragement to them? What if because of my religious convictions, I cannot be an encouragement to them? And I say, I'm not going to interfere with your work or anything, but I'm not going to come along and be an ally. Well, then there's a danger that he's going to lose his job. And some of you are facing the same thing. If not right now, then pretty soon. And you're going to have to decide, am I going to think like a Roman? And am I going to act like a Roman? Or am I going to refuse to receive the mark of the beast in our day and follow after the Lord Jesus Christ and take the consequences? And uh, so I think that's, that's one of the lessons of this passage of Scripture, that throughout history, in our own day as well as throughout history, you've got to make decisions. Am I going to be a silent, cowering Christian who is a Christian only in secret, or am I going to be an outspoken, bold witness for the Lord Jesus Christ? And... Uh, the, the, the victory is going to come to those who are outspoken followers of the Lamb. For though the cause of evil prosper, yet the truth alone is strong. Though her portion be the scaffold, and upon the throne be wrong, yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadows, keeping watch above his own. All right. Today it is a time.